Hello and welcome to Cloudy with a Chance of Brain, the podcast where we bring the cloud down to earth by talking with some of the top minds in the industry. I'm Alex Sage. And I'm Alistair Hodge. We work as consultants for CloudSoft, helping customers get the most out of the cloud. Our guest today is Joe Pindar, founder of Fresh Security, and we'll be picking his brain about one of the biggest topics in tech today, security. Hello, Joe. Hello, Alistair. It's great to be here. Why don't you kick us off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you ended up in the security world? Um, sure. So, I mean, if you you met me now, you would see I am a, a product guy, but I actually started um, as an electronic engineer by training. Um, I specialized in such diverse fields as um, antennas and analog electronics, and then also um, looked at computer architectures. So with a rather eclectic mix of um, interests, I ended up in GCHQ right at the start of my career. And so after several years of working in a, a government basement, I decided I wanted to to get out and see the world and spent uh, the last three years of my time in government employment uh, working with the Met Police and what is now the the National Crime Agency on cybercrime. And from there, it's a a winding series uh, of um, pre-sales, technical roles uh, and the like to where I find myself now. Um, which is a founder of Fresh Security. That's amazing. You're one of those fascinating people who has all the all the juicy stories, but you're not allowed to tell them. Indeed. Uh, it, sufficient whiskey helps, but um, no. <laughs> so let's get to the the nub of some of the security issues around what people should really be worried about. Mm-hmm. Like what kind of attacks should they... Uh, really be thinking about? Sure. So when I think about attacks, um, I think of a spectrum. Um, At one end, you have uh, the 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds who have just downloaded a tool and just try and fire it randomly at the internet. Those are effectively the background noise. And at the other end of the, the spectrum, you have the state actors, what people talk about, advanced persistent threats. And those are top of the pile, extremely uh, capable people. And then you've got a range of people in between. Now, I mean, in terms of of mitigating the attacks, you you have the, on the the people who've just downloaded um, a, a tool, that's just doing the basics of security. That is making sure that you have your house in order. And if you think about the the government and the state-sponsored people, you have to have a super professional team to respond to that kind of thing. The good thing being that for the vast majority of people, they're not going to be targeted by government or state actors. So it's this, this middle ground, which is where a lot of the focus of what we see. And and really, that is uh, the kind of ransomware type attacks that we see all over the news. And that's that's the most prevalent way of working um, or defending from a cybersecurity perspective. Yeah, lots of ransomware attacks in the news recently, of course, and they, they seem to be on the rise. I don't know if that's just because the, the rootkits are more proceduralized and easy to use or 
the cryptocurrencies are, are more accessible so that the people can actually get their money out of people, get get the ransoms out of people. Uh, seems to be the new, the whole new business model <laughs> around ransomware. So um, ransomware is is really interesting um, because um, back when I was working with the, the Met Police and the NCA, one of the, the key things that I learned is that cybercrime is a business uh, in the purest sense of the word. And so... Um, Back then, you had specialists who um, worked out how to break into people's computers, um, infection specialists. You had people who were good at doing botnets and wrangling all the different systems together. And then you had people who were good at taking money out of the out of the, the cyber system and into real world. They were the cash-out specialists. And... One of the most important things to think about cybercrime is that it is a business. And uh, in recent years, when it comes to ransomware, the the way that the cybercriminals have developed this business is that you still have the infection specialists, but now they're actually monetizing the how much they sell their infections based on uh, what the business is. So what you'll see is, in, a, in an extreme example, um, I have access into um, CloudSoft, and they are a one billion revenue company per year. They have immediate access to a hundred million of short-term cash on hand. They have a thousand employees and. This is the phone number of the CEO and their entire board. And I will sell you that access for $7,000. Would you like to buy it? And so what that means is that the, the ransomware teams are taking that for $7,000. They have access. They then have specialists in enterprise technology who understand how a domain is set up, how a um, storage array, how a NAS or a SAN or whatever bits of technology you have in place is set up. And their job is effectively compromise it front to back, and it is effectively a business proposition. Call into the CEO or into the board members and say, we know that you have this amount of money on hand. For only $50 million, we will let you have your company back. And the size of the ransom is directly proportioned to the revenue that that company has. And so it is, for in, in one way of looking at it, a purely business transaction. Wow. Well, oh, my brain's just turned inside out thinking about that. You've, you've stood some assumptions on their head with me. I should point out, but lest anyone gets the wrong idea, that's an example, right? CloudSoft does not employ a thousand people or have a hundred million on in petty cash just waiting to be exploited by script kiddies. Okay, it was an example, guys. Yes, yeah. I I, I thought that that you wouldn't have, be too offended by that example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it does remind me of uh, you know some conversations with some other security folk about the the dark web and the business side of that. That when folk are buying like. Uh, hacks or uh, malware and so on, you can buy IT support from these folk. Uh, it is a really sophisticated business in that um, cybercrime and dark web area, um, scarily so. Like They are very much professionals. 100%. And, and um, 
what, 10 years ago, uh, when I was heavily involved in this place, you could rent a botnet by the hour. And you had different pricing tiers based on the capacity of that botnet. And it was um, in the same way as you, you think about a cloud service now, of I, I want three scoops of that, exactly the same way works for, for criminal infrastructure as well at that time. Goodness. Not a, not currently an AWS service, but I suppose reInvent's not far off. We'll watch with bated breath. <laughs> that spectrum ranges from not terribly worrying to, oh my God, there's literally no way to prevent against this, the nation state attacks. Is that is that fair? So um, I wouldn't say not, not worth worrying about. Um, what I often find is that companies have been so focused on what they are doing in terms of building out a business and so on and so forth, that there is um, a legacy of systems left behind them. And um, if you are um, not aware of your environment, if you're not seeing what's happening, then something as simple as a, a script kiddie or a 12-year-old downloading a tool can absolutely um, compromise your uh, infrastructure and um, shut you out of doing business. So I think... Um, I would certainly not, as as a as an organisation, I would certainly not uh, focus and assume that I'm going to be attacked by uh, the Chinese government, the Russian government, the North Koreans, or so on and so forth. But there is this this low level basic set of requirements, skills that are needed in order to make sure that the twelve year olds in the back bedroom or the ransomware people that I was just talking about cannot give you a really bad day. Absolutely. And I think that's a good analogy is for your home security, instead of worrying about getting the perfect front door lock that's going to guard against these nation state attacks, like what if you've left your window wide open? It's those basics that we really need to get sorted so that the more opportunistic criminals or those who are doing just scanning for things that are uh, have been left open, that we are not falling foul to that. So what are those security basics that people should focus on? So one of the things um, that we see in the space is that um, people have a habit of trying to solve things with point solutions. And it's almost like a, a spray and pray approach to security, where if I buy enough shiny graphics and enough um, shiny presentations that will make my my company secure but really at, at fresh security we, we hold back and take a different approach and we say what makes you unique what is special about your organization and that it could be the the data that you have um, around your people around the finances that you have and if you if you were attacked and you woke up in the morning, you got a phone call 6 a.m. in the morning, what would be that one thing that you went, oh, poo, I hope they didn't get that? And that's the thing that you need to start thinking about and, and making um, more secure. And so the, the way that we, we think about this is that what would a hacker see about you and your organization? 
they'd see your people, they'd see some of your infrastructure, your um, your hardware. And then the way that um, a company gets a good security response to that is what are the processes in place that fill in the gaps, that fill in the vulnerabilities that allow me to incrementally get more secure um, day on day as I do business and then push it as a cost of doing business, push it as a, a background thing. It's, it's not something that should be jumping out and screaming and saying, look at me, which is often the case with security. And to, to give you a very concrete example, the, the first and probably the most overlooked thing is what servers do you have? What pieces of hardware do you have? What laptops do you have in your organization? Something that's super trivially simple, but it is foundationally based on if you don't know what you have, how can you protect it? From there, you go into software, is it supported? Is it patched? Is it up to date? Is it vulnerable? And so on and so forth. And you can expand out. And so that is where a lot of uh, companies need to start to cover those basics rather than buying uh, a, flash, a flashy WebGL AI enabled whatever is cool this week. Yeah, great point. Uh, I love that phrase, spray and pray. Uh, I've certainly seen seen companies trying trying to get that level of comfort and confidence through superficial means without really thinking about uh, what an attacker sees. That's mm -hmm. an interesting hat that you have to put on to look at your company and your your IT state or your applications through the lens of someone that wants to steal things from you. Oh my goodness, what an uncomfortable what an uncomfortable perspective, but a really important one to take. That's fantastic. So yeah, you make a really good point about uh, not just buying things that have that shiny slide where each of those vendors is selling a solution, but is it really for the most important threat vectors or tackling the biggest problems that the customer has? Is it really from that customer's perspective? But that isn't to say that all of these products aren't uh, worthwhile. So if a company doesn't have a sophisticated cyber team, like how do they tell what is fear, uncertainty, and doubt versus good advice? So... Um... The way in which that I always uh, think about um, fear and certainty and doubt is after the conversation, does it make you feel bad? Does it make you feel afraid? And it's it's a super simple thing. But then also, does the the person who you're speaking to come across as superior to you? And that is really... Um, what the cybersecurity industry for many, many years has cultivated. The one-upmanship, the, the kind of the star quality of I know something that you don't know, therefore that makes me better. That is not a good, healthy environment to work in. Certainly, um, the, the way that um, we think about it is, and we like to think that we give good advice, is for the, the, um, the people we're talking to to be able to turn around and say, do you feel that what we've asked you to do is something that's achievable? Is it something you can concretely do? And so as a, for instance, say you've just been told that there are um, a whole bunch of your um, your team members, uh Usernames and passwords, all of the dark web, they're up for sale. They're, it's, it's everywhere on the, on the dark web. 
if we turned around to you and said, for these five people, these five usernames, reset their password and make sure you block these 10 passwords that we've seen. Very tangible, very concrete. And that means that you are starting to get control of um, your cybersecurity process. Knowing what's out there, what a hacker can see about your company, and then doing something about it. Yeah, absolutely. So without appearing rude, Joseph, you you are um, no spring chicken. You've been around the block, as have we. <laughs> and the IT landscape has changed enormously, at least since in, in the time I've been in IT, 25 years. How has the security landscape changed over the, the same kind of time period from your perspective? So the... The way uh, security has uh, evolved over the last 10 years is uh, similar in the way that the cloud has evolved and the, the adoption of the cloud. Um, about 10 years ago, I wrote a paper for um, a European Commission of interna Internal Auditors about cybersecurity in the cloud. And really, the, the focus of that was about the fact that um, Cybersecurity is a business process. It's about a cost of doing business. It is something that is just the same as legal counsel in a company or HR in a company. It is something that you need in order to be sufficiently good and to be good enough at doing something so that then you can focus on what makes you unique as a business and, and thrive off that. And... Um, I think that um, AWS particularly has um, been systematically working their way through. Um, vendors have had point solutions that will encrypt storage in some way or that will um, allow you to identify an anomaly in some way. And rather than having that as a £100,000 product, it now becomes much more of an integrated solution into your cloud environment, into the way that you're working on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that switch to being a, a more systematic, procedural, process-driven um, thing is really where security has uh, evolved. Yeah, that's interesting. We, we come across this in, in other areas of cloud adoption. There's a mindset shift that's required. You're changing your procurement process. You're changing um, the very building blocks from which we assemble IT services. The whole skill sets of teams are changing and and the way they deliver the value stream is, is different. So we have to have a cloud-first mindset. Um, how, how has cloud specifically changed the mindset around security? So I think there's, there's two... Um, key areas to examples uh, of this. Um, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when I first started in uh, security, it was very much on-prem. It was um, a case of you have your office, you build a fortress, you build a digital fortress of bigger, shinier, more impressive firewalls. And they had one connection out into the rest of the world. But you were you had your island of security. And it was a case of people trying to build bigger and bigger islands, higher walls to, to stop people uh, coming in. 
But then as soon as you start thinking about moving out to the cloud, you're taking your data, your price value that you have as a company, and you are pushing it out into AWS, Google, wherever, a third-party environment. And so you can't then put a nice boundary around it. You can't put a perimeter around it. And so there's been a, a fundamental shift to say, well, what is actually important and how do we approach these things? And it's about, number one, working out what your, your data is, what's the valuable information, the OPU moment that I talked about earlier. And then number two, what is the, uh, or who should have access to that? And in what context should they have access to that? And so it's become a much more people-focused, access-focused way of securing the data. And I think that is probably the, the foundational uh, way in which the, the mindset has changed. Um, but I think the, the other thing, that um, really comes out of cloud is that there are some things that you absolutely never could do on-prem that you can do. And it's, it's super simple to do in the cloud. And I think that the biggest thing I always go back to is around availability, keeping um, your website available to people who need to consume it or the data available to people to consume it. Really interesting what you say about the uh, with cloud, you cannot put a nice boundary around it. Completely agree with that. Um, I do wonder, though, whether this is just making people realize uh, sort of the reality of that situation. They thought they could put a boundary around things on-prem, but actually that's just because of their way of thinking about the problem. Uh, when you talk about these uh, sort of human permissions and that sort of data access, then the way, there were ways past that boundary that already existed on-prem. Like if somebody got into the office, if somebody uh, was able to access one of those work laptops from the VPN and so on. And it was just that uh, it was acted as though that boundary existed and it defended that boundary. Whereas now we have much more explicit controls over that and we're forced to think about all the other attack vectors and ways in to that cloud because each of those individual users is now uh, got that way in to potentially access the data if we give them those permissions and we can review the permissions that each uh, group has, uh, who can access the data, how it's all backed up and so on. It's Everything's become far more explicit. Sure, I, I, absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the overly simplistic approach to, to securing the perimeter was uh, a case of put a firewall in, and that's like uh, a boundary. But uh, if you go back to the old analogy of uh, a castle, um, yes, there is an external boundary wall, but there are many, many concentric defenses. And if, um, I mean, you're not far from Edinburgh Castle, um, and you'll see there, like many other castles, that yes, there is an outside and then there's a slightly smaller inside and internal, internal, internal. And so a very good, a very secure way of working on-prem had that idea of degrees and different levels of defenses all the way back to the crown jewels uh, and, the, and the king at the or queen at the um, center of that. 
Now, that is exactly the same way. Um, it just uh, in in the cloud. It just means that we've had to get away from this idea of oh, I'll just drop some tin in, and that's like the outer wall. You have to take a more considered, more complete view of it, and build those concentric defenses. All the best castles have moats, and crocodiles, <laughs> and piranhas. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So we still come across the claim that cloud is less secure than on-prem when we're talking to people about cloud migration. Um, Do you think that's like a one argument in 2021 or is there a validity to that claim? So I I think it's an emotional argument. I think you will carry on hearing it forevermore. Um, There there is a sense whereby if I can see it, if I can feel it, if I can touch it, then it makes me feel more secure that um, the technology is working. But um, when we think about cloud, um, one of the key things from a security perspective is this idea of a shared security model, whereby, um, let's say AWS, as a for instance, the team at AWS are responsible for providing the servers, providing the network, having the infrastructure, configured robustly so that it is um, in a secure way. Now, having um, worked with them, having talked to them on many uh, occasions, one of the things that I know is that they are getting audited almost continuously on a week-by-week basis just because of the number of sites they have, because of the the range of different certifications they've had to the extent that they actually created an automated system to produce the audit reports in order to to make it less cumbersome. Now, if you think honestly about the team on-prem, let's assume that it's not um, the the CEO's cousin who's doing it, but a professional or son who's doing it, but a professional IT organization. Are they honestly up to the standard and capability of passing an audit with two minutes notice, two days notice, always being on. And really that um, provides the foundation of it. And I I think um, one of the key things about cloud, they are providing the security of the undifferentiated part of the network, of the technology, so that you as a business can actually work about what's unique to you. What's a unique data? What's a unique approach? What's a unique way that you think as a company that you can just place on top of that? And because that is unique, how do you keep that secure in your special way? And I think that split model really shows that you can actually spend your effort, spend your focus on what matters and not on the boring stuff down the bottom. And I totally agree with all that you've said there. That really resonates. And you're right to mention the shared responsibility model, uh, security of the cloud versus security in the cloud are the the descriptions of both both sides of that line. And one thing that springs to mind is um, when people who are really good at something like security, so let's take the payment card industry, you know, several PCI companies got together and realized that security was uh, a bit ad hoc 
and they pooled their resources and they shared their knowledge and they came up with the, the data security standard, the PCI DSS. And they published that and they worked on that. And that's been, you know, handed over to some independent body to maintain that standard. But in the process of writing down their expectations for what security means, I think a lot of small to medium companies went, oh, crap, that's what we're supposed to be doing. But they had no idea that that was best practice. And in the in the action of describing the standard, I think a lot of people realized actually we're better off leaving that to somebody else. And, you know, AWS does operations fantastically well. Even, you know, we talked about security of the hypervisors and security of the hosts and security of the networks. What about security of the physical buildings? Uh, that's part of it. Um, and a lot of people, I think, I assume, didn't factor that in when they were considering the security of their on-premise state. And then out comes a standard, a security-focused standard that lays it all bare. And people go, oh, that's oh, that's best practice. Okay, I guess we're not secure. I, absolutely. And I, I think um, it would not be the the first time that I walk into a company and find a mission-critical server sat under someone's desk because it was a development server that became so valuable to the company that they just had to keep it up and running. And it's never quite got migrated into a secure environment. But as soon as you you get a cleaner being a bit um, over-ambitious with hoovering the floor around the cables and the plug gets pulled out, then you start seeing a business impact of that lack of maturity. That is a very real story. Yeah, uh, there's a story of uh, somebody who was having an outage once a week, could not figure out why this was, <laughs> like what cron jobs, and it turned out, yep, the cleaner unplugged that server to plug in the vacuum cleaner every week and plugged it back in again 10 minutes later. Yeah. One, going back to the very start of my career, one of the things I learned very early on was that um, I, I was being called in at 3 a.m. and 2 a.m. To, to have problems uh, fixed and resolved. Um, and everything that we ended up building was designed specially for walking in at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., having had very little sleep, half awake, and it getting to work again. And... Um, a lot of what you see now in DevOps in terms of the, the kind of uh, infrastructure as code, I learned the hard way from far too many 3 a.m. calls. So I, I'm very strong advocate of that. Yeah, if a checklist is good enough for airline pilots for when an engine catches fire, you know, we don't we don't have to be offended that we need to write things down so that it can be uh consistently applied <laughs> and yeah exactly. as code as code the run book that runs itself is the best kind <laughs> so kind of related i guess tangentially to standards i suppose as regs and i'm kind of thinking about you know what what external influences will drive behavioral change organizations so regulatory pressure i think is one source of change and also simple commercial pressure from the likes of i don't know insurance companies they they can inform the way we drive by applying commercial pressure do the insurance providers and or the regulators 
are they having a marked effect on the behaviour of companies as it pertains to cybersecurity? Uh, simple answer, yes. Um, the What we've seen over the last two, three years of we've been monitoring this uh, more closely is that um, there is a broad understanding by the Information Commissioner's Office and insurance companies that you can never get perfect security. You will never... Uh, solve all the problems and never be attacked because a sufficiently motivated person will find a way in one way or another. And so the conversation has become a case of not are you absolutely secure, it's have you taken reasonable steps? Have you shown due care that what you were doing before an attack, before a ransomware infection was sufficient and reasonable that a company in your position should have done. Did you know about a vulnerability in your system? Did you update the vulnerability? And I think that is very much the conversation that businesses are having now. Um, we've had a couple of people we've worked with where they've had security issues and they've had to complete forms for the information commissioner, which effectively says, tell us what your procedures are, tell us what your processes are, what did you know about before this? And from an insurance perspective, um, at its simplest level, it's about risk, risk transfer. It's about taking the risk that I'm going to be disrupted as a business because of ransomware and passing it on to a third party, to the insurance company. And so that insurance company, in order to accept it, has to go, is a, is a customer taking reasonable actions? I can't expect it to be overburdensome because they just won't take out insurance. But what are they actually doing to, to make sure, as Alad said, they haven't left all of their windows and doors wide open and gone on holiday for three weeks? Yeah, that's interesting. Um... Do you think there's enough accountability for uh, security breaches? Um, Equifax was a particularly egregious example where their job was to hold private details, the financial details of people, individuals, and they failed to secure that. And yet they're still trading, they're still in business. Were, were there adequate measures taken against organisations that have cocked up to that degree? So I I think it's a fair question to turn around and say, should someone be held accountable? And, and by accountable, I actually mean run out of business because they have um, done something so egregious that um, they deserve to, to go out there. But looking at it from the other side, so to speak, is like what reasonable measures could have been taken to, to actually secure something? And it all falls back on this idea that um, security is a cost of doing business. It is a decision. You can't solve everything. You can't mitigate every possible risk. But in the same way, um, you can't mitigate every financial risk. It's not Risk isn't special to security. It's a th something that the board, that CEOs, that founders have to do on a day-by-day -day basis. And they are experts at making 
decisions on risk in their environment. And so sometimes they'll get it wrong. Sometimes they will make a bad bet. They will underperform in a financial transaction. It can happen with cybersecurity as well. And so I don't believe that you, you can honestly um, turn around and say you should be held more accountable for cybersecurity than um, a financial transaction. And that's why I think that the, the whole information commissioner's office and insurance companies talking about due care and reasonableness is so, so important because that is actually the conversation that people should have when it comes to, to security. Very measured response, more measured than the, the baying mob of pitchforks and flaming torches. Yeah, fair, fair. So let's come back to some of the specifics of cloud security. Uh, in particular, the secure by default in the cloud is something we'd all love to see. Uh, but how realistic is it? So in some areas, such as leaving an S3 bucket open to the world, it's becoming much harder to do that accidentally. Uh, so AWS have tightened up a whole bunch of defaults that when you're creating that bucket in the console and the warnings it will give you. But for other things, they're still turned off by default. So a couple of my favorite AWS services are CloudTrail to get an audit log of all your activity and GuardDuty to automatically analyze that to spot suspicious looking activities. But these services are not free and they're turned off by default. And even when you do enable them, it it's not actually that easy. You have to enable guard duty separately in every region. You have to jump through some extra hoops to make sure that it sends notifications to you if you're not going to open up the dashboard to look at it regularly. So, you know, what is realistic? How far will we get with secure by default? So I, I think some of the key um, things you, you're just saying is that it's becoming better. It's, it's, it's the idea that this is an incremental improvement. And I think that is massively important. Um, I loved the day when um, they turned around and made encryption on S3 buckets just a tick box because it became that much simpler to turn around and put security from a, a confidentiality perspective onto uh, the cloud. But it is very much a case of things will improve over time. Things will get incrementally better over time. And... Yeah, from a, a fresh security perspective, we use cl CloudTrail. It's something that we, we actively um, work with. But step back and think about um, where most businesses are. And that is, do you have a list of hardware assets, a list of laptops? Is your software up to date and supported? Now, the, the point of CloudTrail is, yes, it's great for an audit log. Yes, it's great for recording what's happening. But it's only useful if you have a team or an engine to actually look at that log and look at what you're seeing in that log. And if you, you're not mature enough to have an IT organization or a, a security team that actually knows why they want to actually search in that log, then you're already too far down the, down the line. And I think um, what I see AWS doing very, very well is actually taking people on a journey from something as simple as, let's just put encryption on your data through to 
gradually putting more and more things behind the scenes, make it harder to to publish your data to the world in S3 because it was it was a low it was a low wall. People were tripping over it, and in due time, when you can record to CloudTrail and then have a way of understanding what's happening in CloudTrail, operating at a business level, operating at a frankly a simple straightforward level that you can understand in in seconds that's when it will be become on by default and become more secure but it the, the whole idea is that it's a process this takes time it's not a point solution hmm. intrigued at your mention of you know you need humans in the loop to interpret the results of what these auditing services are telling you the vpc flow logs the cloud trail logs the dns logs interesting also that AWS and other cloud providers are, are turning AI to that problem. So you have services like GuardDuty that will process all those aforementioned log streams and detect anomalies. Um, do you see those AI-based uh, services or machine learning-based services providing any value for those uh, experience-strapped organizations that don't have that very experienced, very nuanced uh, ops team to be pouring over the logs in near real time? So, so AI, um, AI comes from a place of good intentions. It, it is something that tries. And um, having seen CloudTrail logs on a, a production system, you realize that there are a hell of a lot of different signals coming through, and they need to be filtered in some way. And AI tries to do that. Now, talking to to one of our advisors um, the other day, um, she turned around and said, whenever I hear AI and security, it means false positives. I'm just going to get um, a load of messages coming to my security team going, the end of the world is nigh because I've seen this, this, and this. I say, like, well, actually, no, that's that's not what was happening at all. The AI isn't quite advanced enough to understand it. And so in time, you'll get um, less and less human intelligence being required and hu- human knowledge and experience being required. But certainly for the next significant period of time, um, the AI is in the learning phase and will be... Um, sending out things that make absolutely no sense to someone who's been a system administrator for any period of time. I love the perspective. You mentioned, you mentioned um, enabling certain security features in AWS by simply ticking a box, encryption on S3. That's nice. I also agree that it's nice that we can do that. Making the correct course of action easy for end users is is a, a technological marvel. Um, certificate management is now a lot easier with Let's Encrypt in the open source space or certificate management services on AWS or other platforms. So it's easy to, to turn these things on when we're creating our environments. And security reviews and security discussions will often have a long list of requirements that say, this must be ticked, this must be ticked, this must be turned on, that must be enabled. Um, to what extent is that actually relevant? <laughs> if I th- if I think about encryption at rest, that come that that seems to me to address a threat vector 
where people have direct access to the storage. So I could walk up to your computer and I could remove the hard drive and take it home and see its contents. But realistically, no one can do that in an AWS data center. The disks are virtual. S3, you, you can't tell which disk an S3 bucket is sitting on or striped across. And similarly for you know encryption and transit, that was to protect me walking up to the network switch and plugging in a cable and and you know a span port on the switch and being able to intercept the traffic on the network. But again, another AWS user can't can't intercept my network traffic within the boundary of the VPC. So are these tick box exercises still valuable or have the threat vectors changed so significantly that we should reevaluate them? So I I think going back to your point earlier, um, what worked on-prem has changed and has evolved when it comes to, to the cloud. And absolutely, I, I have um, personally sold hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of encrypted storage because there was a chance that someone would um, come along, take a disk, and get access to it in exactly the way that you say. Well, and also you worked for the government, so the main threat vector was something. No, 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 no. no. After, Le- leave it, after leave it I, on a train. I for- <laughs> <laughs> leave it at a bus stop, yeah. Um, after I, um, I worked for, for the government. But um, I think that that particular example is still entirely relevant um, because it's not so much about someone stealing a disk anymore. It's about you as a company are putting your data out into the cloud. And one of the ways that S3 um, gets its 99.9s worth of availability, that might be an exaggeration, I can't remember what it is, but it's it's a lot, um, is the fact that it makes multiple copies of it around the place. So in disks always fail. And you you have to always have them. Um, you always have to have them backed up in some some way. But if you think about it from a, a consumer perspective, from a customer's perspective, you're giving my data out into this massive nebulous cloud thing. It's backed up in fifteen different locations across multiple continents. What happens if I want to to say, no, you can't share that anymore. I want that data back. And by having an encryption on it, encryption uses an encryption key as the, the kind of the seed to make it all happen. And in order to get access to that data, you need access to the encryption key. As soon as you destroy that encryption key, shred it, do whatever with it, you can no longer and never get access to that data, which means that it's it's almost like a, a ripcord. After you have released your data into the wild that is AWS, you still have this ripcord that says, now it's secure. I no longer want to share that. And that becomes a very real uh, business requirement for compliance reasons. And that's why we have S3 buckets that are encrypted and so on and so forth. Very of course, for the uh, people who are going to go for ransomware attacks, you've got to be incredibly careful. They cannot pull out a card and have your own key. But yeah, you make a really good point there. Yes. Um, 
in a in a similar way you can absolutely encrypt all of your own data um i may know from painful experience <laughs> that you do that and then you you lose the key and oh oops you don't get yeah, access no. anymore non non-committal anecdote i love it <laughs> So, I mean, we, we were asking a moment ago about, you know, are the old threat vectors still threat vectors in the cloud world? And, and you answered that well. But what about new threat vectors? How, how do we ensure that things like security views and written processes are kept up to date with things like serverless or full automation around CI/CD pipelines, where obviously these tools need credentials and those credentials need to be managed and oh, what's the best <laughs> practice? I don't know. We weren't doing this 20 years ago. Um, what, what threat vectors are emerging in the brave new world of agile and serverless and cloud? So it, it's funny that you say we weren't doing these things um, 20 years ago. Um, but 20 years ago, um, we had a concept of least privilege. And what that means is that only give someone access to something if they need it. There is absolutely no reason why the intern should have access to all the financial records of the company. Only the finance department needs that. Only HR needs all of the personnel records and, and so on and so forth. And so um, when you think about CICD, um, something we we use very widely in fresh security, you have a service account that is de dedicated to the purpose of deploying and rolling out. One of the absolute brilliant things and equally insanely complicated things that AWS has is the permissions that you can tie down to literally everything to do exactly what you need and no more. And so you can take that 20-year-old idea and apply it to CICD. And then similarly, when it comes to um, when it comes to serverless, another uh, tool that we use um, very widely, there is this idea of, well, how do you, um, it, it's attack service, attack surface. How do you break in to an organization? What is visible in order for you to, to break in? Now, when it comes to serverless, because you are billed and you have generally speaking, short-running executing functions, your attack surface is not only computer and, and so on and so forth that is locked down. It is you have to be there within the correct 200 milliseconds. Otherwise, you never see it. And so that actually enhances the security because it's it makes the attack surface that we've known about for many years even smaller. And now it's time-based, not just um, technology and server-based. Interesting. So even if the window was left open, it's now a very small window. So interesting. And it was only open to let a fly out. <laughs> <laughs> so we're nearly out of time. So finally, uh, you must have come across a few oops moments in your career. Are there any you, you can share? Without falling um, afoul of the, uh, the national... Secret sex. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I can claim all the times that I accidentally deleted uh, the operating system as national secrets, right? 
Absolutely. Okay. Phew. Um, <laughs> I, I think the um, one uh, I, I always think about, and it, it's um, when it comes to, to ransomware, ultimately you have a choice of are you going to pay the ransom or not? It's a business decision. If you decide not to do it, which most companies decide not to do it, um, how are you going to rebuild? How are you going to get yourself out of this situation? And I remember a, a couple of times when um, companies have had their domain controllers. So that's the the, um, the list of all the accounts and all of the passwords and everything working together. And that's been encrypted. And they said, don't worry, we have a backup. Okay, great. What? How, how many backups do you have? Well, we have one backup from last night. It's like... Um, this happened three days ago. So all of your backups are encrypted. All of your backups are infected. You don't actually have a backup. And I think that is one of those oops. Ouch. You, you, you're, doing what, you're doing what you should be doing, and you're doing exactly what um, it tells you to do um, on all good security guides. It's just that because you did it for one backup, instead of a week or a month or so and so forth, you can't actually go back far enough to clean up your system. Ouch. But it was all, it's all fine in the end. But um, that's one of those oops moments. We, we made a, a faulty decision there. get the sense we could uh, talk about stories like this all day. Uh, we should draw this to a close. But if, if people do want to hear more from you and hear more of your fascinating stories from the security world, where can people find you? Not, um, physic not physically, that's a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so you can Google Fresh Security and we should um, show up on that. It's freshtech.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, probably is the most uh, prolific place where I um, am. And if you want to um, get an understanding of who your highly visible people are within your um, company, and if they have lost passwords on the dark web, then you just have to send an email to risk at freshsec.com and you'll automatically be told. So we don't, we don't Google our name and our passwords. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll put those links in the show notes. Um, all that remains for me to do is to say thank you very much, Joe Pinder. That was fascinating, uh, fascinating and occasionally scary uh, foray into the world of security um, so thank you very much for joining us today and uh, I hope our listeners will tune in for the next instalment of Cloudy with a Chance of Brain thank you very much Joe thank, thank you, you.